Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. Ontario COVID numbers are going up, colliding black holes, and the Kojiko Chronicle. All that's coming up. Let's get to it. 132, 132 new cases of COVID-19 in the province of Ontario in the last 24 hours. That is the eighth day in a row that the number has been over 100. Uh, Not that I'm any kind of medical expert, but by just watching what the trend has been, you know, I've been saying for a while that as kids go back to school, that number is going to keep going up. This is not a surprise, folks. You should not be freaked out by it because as we continue to reopen, the expert advice has been and continues to be that the numbers are going to go up. So the numbers are 132 today, but what are they going to be a week from now, two weeks from now when we get into school? Because that's going to have a real impact on what parents are thinking and the narrative about that. And in our next segment, I am going to get you through some of the spin to try and get you to some level of truth for the parents out there. Because like you, if you have kids that are going back into the public school system, I'm just like you. I'm worried about it, and I'm not 100% sure. And you've got all of these narratives. You've got Doug Ford saying, let's give it a shot. It's going to be just fine. And then you've got Andrea Horvath today saying, well, it's not safe. It's not safe. Is it politics at play? Where's the science? Let's take you through it. Let's get you the numbers right now. As I mentioned, 132 new cases. Toronto's got 31 of those. Peel, 45. Ottawa, 22. Your hospitalizations remain unchanged at 60. In the ICU, 12. That's down one. Ventilators, nine. That is unchanged. It's been a while since I've dug into the numbers because I like to caution people, don't get too into the numbers. Because if you start to fetishize the numbers, then, oh, wait a minute. Did I, did I mention fetish? Dr. Tam? It's Dr. Tam? a mask. It's a mask. Dr. Tam, Dr. Teresa Tam, telling the country yesterday that if you're going to get with it, get a mask on it. It's a mask. It's a mask. Hey, baby. It's a mask. Stop kissing, avoid face-to-face closeness, wear a mask that covers your mouth and nose, and monitor yourself and your partner for symptoms ahead of any sexual activity, said Dr. Tam. Sweetheart, let's take our temperatures. Quote, the lowest risk sexual activity during COVID-19 involves yourself alone, said Dr. Tam. So just yourself alone. I'm just wondering, what would, what would... Stephen Lecce say about that. To de-risk the circumstance. It's basically, that's what he's doing right there. I, I You're de-risking. It's, it's a good plan to de-risk your circumstance by wearing a mask and doing it alone. It's a mask. It's a mask. Maybe even if you're alone, put a mask on just to be sure. To de-risk the circumstance. Thank you, Stephen Lecce. So let's get back to those numbers. And new numbers from the Toronto District School Board this morning. Nearly a third of elementary school students in Toronto and 22% of high school students not going to class. They will learn from home instead. Those are pretty extraordinary numbers, but it, you know, flip it on its, on the other end, you still have a majority of kids going back 
to class. And I know that that is the Toronto District School Board, and sometimes I, you know, I get email from people saying, hey, you know, there's, there's more to the province, there's, there's more to your listenership than just Toronto, but that gives you a sense, I think, what you'll see in the sh- surrounding areas as well, in Halton and Durham and Peel, that same sort of thing. And I, I, I want to tell you about the numbers again, because again, they tell such a good story, and if you dig into the science here, maybe this is going to help us all as parents get a better grip on our emotions because our emotions are being played to from all sides. So in terms of testing in the last 24 hours in this province, we conducted just over 26,000 tests and our percent positivity on that, the most recent number I can find from just, uh, I believe this might be two days ago, but it is still a current number. It's 0.7%. That is our percent positive that is a key number. It, it, it means what it sounds like it means. It means the percent of tests that come back as positive. 0.7% is currently what we are sitting at in the province of Ontario. According to the World Health Organization, 5% is the rule of thumb for too high that it indicates that there are likely more cases out there that are not being detected, that there is probably unchecked transmission within the community at 5%. We're at 0.7. For perspective from the United States, in New York State, the governor there has says, said that schools can reopen in New York State if the percent positivity is no more than 5%. Again, that 5% ceiling. But in New York City, the mayor there has said, no, that's too high. They've scaled it back to 3%. In Arizona, it's 7%. Iowa, it's 15%. But let's take those off the table. Let's look at just New York City, 3%. Again, we're at 0.7%. That gives you some perspective of the number of cases that are out there, and the likelihood of real risk of transmission within classes. I'm, obviously, the science says that there is risk. There will always be risk until we have the virus eradicated or a vaccine. So as you take that into account, the other thing that you got to be thinking about now is collapsing classrooms. So you know the percentage of spread is not high, but you also know that the advice to the government here in Ontario is to keep class sizes low. And what we've been hearing the last couple of days is that provincial mandates for class sizes are going to remain high, which is going to result in something called collapsing classrooms. And remember, the premier said he didn't know if that was actually going to happen. If we were actually going to get grades three, four, and five all squeezed together, class sizes way back up high because that's the provincial mandate. Now, here is Sam Hammond from the Elementary Teachers Federation this morning. And listen carefully because there's a nice takeaway here. Here's Sam Hammond this morning. He was speaking with Andrea Horvath. Mr. Hammond. Well, the, the premier is not sure about a lot of things, but I can absolutely absolutely assure him uh, that it's happening. Cl- classes are being collapsed uh, across the province, and it is a it is a concern in terms of actual numbers. Uh, don't have those, and one of the reasons is uh, that the situation and and assignments are changing every every day. 
That is Sam Hammond, an apology for the audio quality there. That was from a, a Zoom call, uh, a Zoom press co- press conference. What a time to be alive. Uh, and uh, the audio a, a little mangled on that as I listened to it come in this morning. But I thought that was interesting there. Two things to take away, really. One, it is happening. And two, we don't know how much because everything is still changing. And isn't that the truth? So wait a minute here. Before we get all carried away with collapsing classrooms everywhere and widespread COVID-19, I think it's time that we check the actual facts, because the Toronto District School Board said yesterday it does not expect to collapse any more classrooms than would be usual in a usual year, that this kind of thing happens all the time as they figure out how many people, how many students are coming to class. And obviously, in this case, this year, we don't have the numbers until just today. It's just today that the TDSB released the numbers that I told you about. That's one-third of elementary school students not coming, 22% of high school students not coming. So there, there will be some collapsing, but how, how much? And the answer for parents, I mean, the difficulty is, is where does the truth lie? If you take out all of the people who are saying the sky is falling, and I am in no way suggesting that what the government is saying is 100% accurate because there's spin on all sides, a pox on all their houses. But as parents, we're being spun like battling tops, trying to figure out where is the reality, what is the truth. And those numbers I gave you give you some insight. The communication remains so poor from the center, from the government, that the result has been a cacophony of confusion and chaos. And Doug Ford just has this to say. Let's give this a shot. Let's give it a shot. Meanwhile, we have the medical officer of health here, Dr. David Williams, who can't seem to be able to communicate well enough to parents to be able to cut through the politics, to cut through the spin. By the way, interesting that Dr. Williams hasn't mentioned anything about wearing a mask. Doc, it's just a mask I'm wearing. It's a mask. It's a mask. The takeaway, as I sum up for all of us parents, is to just get out the salt shaker. And it's going to take more than a couple of grains of salt to wade through what is going to be increasing hysteria over the next week and into the first couple of weeks of class. We'll have teachers on social media saying one thing. We'll have union members and union leaders saying another. The government will say, all is well! And Dr. Williams... And and Dr. Williams will be in the midst of like a 35-minute answer that no one understands. The takeaway for parents is cut through it all. Look at those numbers. The spread is low. The case numbers are low. Yes, they are tracking back up, but we expected that. Don't get freaked out by it. It's a question of knowing where do you live? Where's the kid going to school? 
And is there really a possibility of community transmission that could, as Andrea Horvath said this morning, go through schools like a shot? I don't know if the evidence supports that as reality. As we take a look high above, high above our heads and peer off into space to try and get some idea of what's going on in the universe and what does it mean for, you know, the origin of the planet, the origin of space. Well, this crazy stuff that's been happening, and this has really just blown my mind as I try and wrap my head around it, is that a giant gravitational shockwave has spread out across the galaxy, across the universe, from the biggest merger yet observed between two black holes. And the signal from the event traveled for some 7 billion years, and it reached Earth last May and was detected in the U.S. and in Italy. And researchers say that that what this gravitational shockwave shows is that two black holes collided. To try and help me understand this, because I'm sure I butchered all of that, is Sarah Gallagher, who is science advisor to the Canadian Space Agency. Welcome to the program, Sarah. Thank you so much, Alan. It's my pleasure to be here. Okay, did I get any of that right? We've got we've got colliding black holes. You got you did a fantastic job. You explained it really well. That's exactly what was what was observed. And what was really so fantastic and so exciting and so unexpected was that one of the black holes was actually really big. So it was 85 times the mass of our sun. And that was really unexpected. We didn't think that you could make black holes that big. Um, exactly that amount of material. So when we talk about a gravitational shock wave and how it is that we are extrapolating information that you know has come to us now, uh, tell me a little bit about these sensors and, and what did they detect? So what they detect, they're basically two giant arms that are each four kilometers long, and they're in the shape of an L. And what the machine does, what the, um, what the experiment does, is it sends a laser and it bounces it off of a mirror along each one of those arms. And that laser is able to measure distances really, really, really precisely. And when you have a gravitational wave that passes through the detector, what happens is actually the distance along those arms changes a tiny, tiny bit. And it changes in a very specific pattern um, and that pattern is called actually a chirp. It's kind of a, um, it, it's a pattern that increases in frequency. So it goes, if you were actually listening to it. And the exact pattern and the way it changes allows us to figure out how massive the black holes were that crashed into each other and sent out a distortion of space and time across the universe. And when we're talking about the black holes themselves, what's our understanding about them? My my reading of this is that, that this has now changed scientists' understanding about the, the number and the size of black holes? That's right, because as far as we know, the best way to make black holes um, that are a few times the mass of our sun is that you have a giant star and that, that star, at the end of its life, explodes, and it leaves behind a cinder that's a black hole. But we, don't, we didn't realize that you could actually leave behind a black hole that was this massive. 
because the idea is basically that a star, in order to make a black hole this massive, would just blow itself apart before it was actually able to make a black hole this big. So this was really unexpected. And it also just shows why you have to go out and look, because if, if you just ask us what we think is out there, we're going to get it wrong. Um, so this is really, uh, really quite exciting, and it tells us that we don't actually know everything about how you make black holes. And and this number that I read, 7 billion years ago, the actual event that we're talking about happened that long ago? That's right. So what's really cool about astronomy is that as you look out in the universe, you're actually looking back in time because it takes time for light to travel and to reach our telescopes and our detectors. So as we look farther away, we're looking back in time. And the universe is about 14 billion years old. So that's basically how far back we can look. Um, so this is about halfway back in the age of the universe when this actually happened. But it's taken that long for that signal to reach our detectors. And it's a good thing because we didn't have these detectors seven billion years ago, so we wouldn't have even known about it. When you talk about the black holes themselves and the different kinds, the fact that they actually merge together, that smaller black holes can combine to make larger black holes, does that fundamentally change some of our understanding about the nature of space? our understanding. That's something that uh, was expected. And before this detector turned on several years ago, the whole reason it was, was built was to detect these sorts of events. But the problem with two black holes that are merging together is that we can't see them. There's no other way for us to know they're there except to see how they distort the space time around them when they actually merge. So when this uh, was first detected, the merger of two black holes, it really confirmed something that, uh, that scientists had been expecting. But what wasn't expected was just how big this, this particular black hole was, because it wasn't clear that you could make something that big from a single massive star. Sarah, could we turn our mind to a, a little closer uh, in our own solar system? I'm just wondering, you know, as, as we talk about, you know, what's way, way out there, how is our understanding about, you know, the planets around us changed in the last little while? Has there been, you know, with, with we have more telescopes now in orbit and we just have better detection, what's the latest science on, you know, the the planets nearest to us? Uh, there's all sorts of really remarkable things we're learning about our solar system. So if we look at Mars, um, there's been lots of discoveries of water on the surface of Mars and all in lots of different forms. And that's surprising um, that water is, has actually been detected to, to be um, to melt on some places in Mars. One of the things that I think is really the coolest about recent discoveries of the solar system are just how weird and, and wild a lot of the moons are around some of the other planets. So there are moons that have, um, ice under their surfaces. There's moons that are um, crazy volcanoes. Um, Pluto, when we sent New Horizons past Pluto, um, it turned out Pluto was really weird too. So um, I think exploring the solar system has really shown just the diversity of all the little bodies in the solar system is really quite, um, quite amazing. And that's something that we're really getting a handle on in the past few years. Are you on Pluto planet side or non-planet side? Um, I, I don't think it matters what you call it, but if you call Pluto a planet, then we have to call lots of other things planets, too, just to be fair, and then it gets con confusing. 
one of the things actually that's really exciting, I think one of the most exciting things is that we actually detected a asteroid that came from another solar system. And so that was really cool. Um, that was a very cool result. Sarah Gallagher is science advisor to the Canadian Space Agency president. And great to have you on the program. So fascinating, Sarah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alan. Take care. Wow, now that is some cool stuff. Whereas, you know, every once in a while, it's nice to just look above and just, you know, not think about what's going on in the world, not worry about a pandemic, not worry about having to put on a mask, Dr. Tam. Gosh, that is awkward. It's a mask. It's a mask. It's a mask. Is the proposed deal to buy Kojiko dead? Altus USA and Rogers Communications have put forward an unsolicited $10.3 billion offer to acquire Kojiko, but stiff opposition from the company's controlling shareholder and from the Premier of Quebec has put it all very much in doubt. Anya Caradeglia is the editor of The Wire Report and joins me on the line. Anya, is it over? Is the deal off? I don't know that anybody can say that it, it can say either way with any certainty right now. You know, we had a couple of analysts uh, come out and say they think this might be around one. Maybe we're just waiting for a higher offer. But whether uh, the company would be willing to take that higher offer, uh, we don't we don't know. So um, it's very much a, a waiting game to see what happens next. Just for some perspective, how big is Kojiko and where are is where are its customers? So Kojiko has um, offers cable and internet service in Ontario and Quebec, mostly outside the major cities. It is uh, significantly smaller than Rogers. Um, last quarter, it had revenues of about six hundred and twenty-six million, and it doesn't have. Um, it's actually the only Canadian publicly traded telecom without a uh, wireless offering. It doesn't offer wireless service. And in terms of its ownership structure, as I mentioned, that the company's controlling shareholder, the uh, family through its uh, holding company, uh, how does that break down? How much control does that family actually have over Kojiko? So, I mean, they have enough control that um, I'm trying to remember the the exact numbers, but it's a majority. It's enough that it is really up to them uh, whether the company uh, sells or doesn't sell. And then I also mentioned that the Premier of Quebec weighted in. Uh, there's obviously got to be some regulatory concerns here. Yes. So there's actually a number of different um, there's a number of different ways that government or regulators could put, could put the brakes on this. Um, so the yes, the Premier of Quebec reacted very very quickly. He had a pre-scheduled interview on the on the radio when this news came out yesterday. And he essentially said that as soon as he saw the bid, he uh, was immediately on the phone with Louis Audet, who is the former CEO of Kojiko um, and uh, currently, I think, the, the largest shareholder, because the Audet family holds its uh, 69% of all voting rights in Kojiko Inc. Um, so, and the premier was very clear that, you know, they don't want to see the uh, headquarters move from Montreal, which is where they are now, to Toronto, which is where they would move if Rogers bought the Canadian asset. So how the Quebec government could actually put a stop to the deal is a little bit unclear. They have a few different ways that that they could do this. Um, they have an investment arm, Investments in Quebec. Maybe they could, they could use that to, to influence some a deal in some way. 
Um, and then there's also the precedent of what happened about 20 years ago, uh, the last time that Rogers tried to buy a large cable company in Quebec, which is when they tried to buy a cable operator, Videotron, and the uh, pension fund, Caisse de Depot Plus Fond du Québec, um, actually teamed up with Quebec company, Quebecor, to buy Videotron instead. So maybe so that serves as some kind of model of what could happen. So this is interesting because it, it not only, you know, touches on telecommunications, but also on you know, Quebec culture and Quebec identity as well. Very much so. Very much so. This isn't just a, a business story or a telecom story. It's very much a, a political and a cultural story. So, you know, the idea that a large, um, significant Quebec company like Kojiko could move to Toronto, that, that would be quite a sore point um, in Quebec. Um, it would be something that politically, you know, the government wouldn't want to happen. So, um, yeah, there's definitely a number of different elements to, to this whole story. The other element being Altus USA. Why is there an American company involved in this? So it's because Kojiko actually has operations on both sides of the border. They have a Canadian arm and a U.S. arm, which is Atlantic Broadband, which has actually been growing um, over the past years um, kind of consistently. So the idea behind the offer was that Altus USA wanted to buy all of Kojiko for $10.3 billion. And then um, they had no interest, presumably, in the Canadian operations, and then they would sell the Canadian operations to Rogers. How badly does Rogers want Kojiko, do you think? I mean, I know that there, it's been kind of commonly accepted that they um, are interested in Kojiko for a number of years now. That's just kind of something that people have been, been seeing for a long time. Uh, they currently actually own a portion of the company. They have about 33% of the subordinate voting shares at um, the telecom arm and 41% of the parent company. Um, so they've obviously been interested um, for a long time. And Kojiko's... Um, network footprint kind of fits in well with Rogers because uh, Kojiko is in the areas of Ontario where Rogers isn't. And just to circle back to where we began, obviously it looks like the deal as proposed that is a $10.3 billion offer. Doesn't sound like that's going to get it done. Uh, it, just reading, you know, through the statements from the, the family and then also weighing in the Quebec angle, yeah, you you want to you want to give it a percentage. You want to give me some odds on whether this deal will ever go through. Ah, uh, oh, that I I would not want to uh, I, I I would not want to speculate that way because it all um, unless we know what's going on in the minds of the that family and what they're thinking is um, we don't know. It's really going to be up to them. It's going to be their decision. Um, you know whether a higher offer is going to get it done, whether it's more important to them um, to keep the, the company within the family. You know, that's that, that th- those are internal family discussions that, uh, that I'm not privy to. It's like an episode of Succession. It would be great. Thank you. <laughs> Anya Caradeglia is the editor of The Wire Report. Great to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Alan. All right, let's take a, a look at what's going on uh, overseas. The Russian president, Vladimir Putin, spokesperson, has now accused Germany of not providing any evidence at all of Kremlin involvement in the poisoning of Putin's most determined critic. In fact, spokesperson for the Russian government is now suggesting that maybe he was poisoned in Germany. German authorities have said that tests show, quote, proof without doubt that dissident Alexei Nalvani, 
who was being treated in Berlin, had indeed been poisoned with a chemical nerve agent. This chemical nerve agent, part of a family of poisons developed in the Soviet era. Here is the European Commission spokesman, Peter Stano. When it comes to what happened around the case of Mr. Navalny, at this stage, the EU, not only the HRVP, but all the EU leaders and uh, leaders of EU member states were very clear in their strong condemnation uh, of, uh, of the use of this chemical agent uh, against Mr. Navalny. That is Peter Stano, European Commissioner, Commission spokesperson, a spokesperson for the European Commission, and my apologies for the cutting out audio there. And then also earlier today, the Prime Minister of Poland with a very pointed tweet saying that the time for accommodation is over, that the truth of the regime, of the Russian regime under Putin, must be understood for the threat that it poses and the willingness of the Russian authorities and the Russian government to go after both dissidents within the country and also dissidents without. This is the same nerve agent that was used in an attempt to kill a Russian uh, expatriate and dissident living in the UK. All of it does not bode well for a deepening Cold War between the West and between Russia. An interesting reading this morning as I was reading a piece in Time, uh, timemagazine.com, time.com, uh, talking about, you know, don't make the mistake of believing that Russia is a monolith uh, under Putin any more than America is a monolith under Trump. Obviously, Trump has enormous control and influence, and but, you know, there are different actors within the American system. There are different actors within the Russian system as well, and we simply don't know the level of involvement of Vladimir Putin, but it certainly would would there would certainly be proof that he has given his uh, un- approval, if not tacitly, just let it happen. And they have these competing interests within the state that are now going after any kind of dissident. And the message is clear to anyone who tries to stand in w- the way of the Putin government. Coming up at 1 o'clock, we have Doug Ford, as per usual, and there will be more questions, of course, about back to school, as there always are. I'll bring are. you a couple of peaches for that great, great question. I got a whole um, basket of them here. And I, oh, I also noticed this, that uh, speaking of peaches, that uh, there's been a salmonella outbreak. Where is that? Just, uh, But here's the important thing you need to know. U.S. peaches. So there, See? You buy the Ontario peaches, you're going to be good. It's just you, there's been a bit of an outbreak, and people have uh, come down with illnesses because of, of American peaches. So, Doug Ford, what kind of peaches? You got good peaches? You got Ontario peaches? I got questions, Doug Ford. I'll bring you a couple of peaches for that great great question. I got a whole basket of them here. A whole basket. whole basket of peaches. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch the Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion. Oh, my God. The ship is sinking. I can't get out. There's water everywhere. We're going down. I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hurry. Hello? Are you there? Hello?
Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.